Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School class. My name is Lori Atkins, filling in for Dr. Tim Jennings, who is away, enjoying some well-deserved rest and relaxation time with family this weekend. Let's begin class with prayer today. Father, we are humbled and grateful to be uh, in your presence. We invite you here today. Uh, we invite your Holy Spirit to baptize us and uh, open our hearts, open our minds. We pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Help us to understand uh, these symbols, these metaphors. Help us to understand the larger reality to which they point is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're on Lesson 11 in our quarterly. It's called The Promise this month, and this week's lesson is called The New Covenant Sanctuary. Don't forget, when I teach, we're a little more interactive. I'm inviting, coveting your participation. Any thoughts, any impressions of this week's lesson? It's There's a definite... Uh, Diagnosable viewpoint, is there not? I thought that was very clear. What else? How did you react? What did it, what did it make you think? What did it make you feel? I had a couple of thoughts, a couple of feelings while studying the lesson. It was kind of disheartening. Yeah. First of all, I thought it sounded familiar. It sounded very much like what I have always been taught, what I grew up being taught, believing um, about the Old Testament sanctuary, about the heavenly sanctuary, about atonement. It also made me feel a little frustrated, a lot sad. Um, It gave me some insight into how pagan Godstructs and penal legal substitution theology has infected our church, just as it has most of Christianity. And it made me really grateful, grateful for the Holy Spirit, the inspiration that he, that the Holy Spirit continues to enlighten, to shine new, new light on old truths. Grateful that I found come and reason ministry and grateful that I now have some different answers, different explanations for when I'm faced with these penal legal lies and distortions Answers and explanations that are consistent with scripture, they're consistent with science and God's natural design laws and methods, and they're consistent with my experience of God's character of love. So, I'm going to veer from the quarterly escosh today. And when I say escosh, I mean completely. I'm going to look at both the Old Testament sanctuary symbols, the rituals, the meaning of the sacrificial uh, ritual, and I'm going to look at it uh, from the healing reality perspective with a design law lens. Same with the New Covenant Heavenly Sanctuary. Same healing reality and design law view. So, some of, our, some of the material that I got today is from a seminar that Dr. Jennings held. He held an entire one-day seminar focused on Old Testament sanctuary, decoding the symbols, the rituals, the feast days, So we're only going to hit a few of the high points here. But that seminar is called The Sanctuary and Feast Days, A Hidden End Time Message. We recorded it. We made a DVD on it. And it's available on the website, which I'll show you following class. 
So everything I needed to prepare the study today is available on the website. All Bible metaphor points to one reality, the truth about God's character of love, his methods and principles. What's another name for principles? Laws. Laws, his design laws, and his plan to heal and restore each of us, along with the entire universe, back to his design. Remember, if a metaphor or a parable or a simile doesn't point to a larger reality, then what happens? It's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It loses its status as metaphor and becomes fantasy. It has to point to some larger reality. There's some comfort in ritual. There's a ton of comfort in ritual and checking boxes and adhering to a list of rules. Uh, I think Mrs. White describes it as seductive. Yeah. So, of course, the challenge then is to properly interpret the symbolism, to properly interpret the metaphor. And there is something even worse than not understanding a symbol's meaning. You know what that is? Incorrectly understanding a symbol's meaning. Attributing a false meaning to the symbols is worse because then you put your stake in the ground. You believe you have the truth. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that. You stop looking for correct for the correct answer or the true meaning or the unfolding truth. Even if you think you found something that is true, I'm telling you, in my life at this point... I would say basically 99.9% of everything I ever believed was true has been proven false. And I'm not just talking spiritually. I'm talking everything that I staked my claim on and thought, I got this. No. If you live long enough, it's going to be proven false. So I never want to get in that position again. I never, ever want to say, I got it. I'm right. And hear me when I say, again, I'm not in the quarterlies this week because I did not want to criticize every other statement. I don't think pointing out distortion, I think, is fine. I just didn't want to want to go there today. So when I veer off on this other track, it's not to say I think I'm right or we've got it right and they've got it wrong. This is just I know what this Uh, perspective has done for me, like I said, spiritually and otherwise in a liberating life-changing fashion. I believe it's true, but I also want to be open to unfolding truth, ever unfolding truth. So more evidence, more evidence, more evidence, and let it, let our views um, adjust with unfolding truth. Because you know, if you do put your stick in the ground, you could, everyone you influence after that exactly. is going to be poorly influenced because if you, like Jesus said to the Pharisees, yes. you travel the whole world trying to find a convert. And when you find one convert, you make him twice the son of hell exactly. than you are yourselves. I mean, I'm pretty sure that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> right. If you, if you look at yourself and you think, who, you know, look at the trail of people. I've yes. Been. Not only my own beliefs, but... You know, the trail of people I've influenced. Absolutely. Now God has to do something or I need to do something to, you know, 
you know, move that trail into a better position. We're going to talk about that. And these are people that you knew you influenced and maybe those that you didn't know you influenced because we are being watched. The entire universe is watching, but other people are watching how we handle things. Yes, in the back. In addition to that, I think that when you place your stake in the ground like that, as well as all these things, you also become too proud. Of course. And make you not want to admit I was wrong. Oh, exactly. You got too much invested in the, in the old view. To say that you were wrong might mean everything around your paradigm crumbles. You might have written textbooks about what is now wrong. And it, it's a lot to give up. Yeah, that's a huge so issue. minister's influence. And the yes. says that in the end time, people will turn on their ministers. I know. And mm. say, you, you convinced me I had, this was the right way and it was yes. the wrong way. And I mean, we've heard that. We've heard that in testimonials that when they, when the design law view kind of that linchpin that turns lights on and changes the paradigm, there's, there's great disappointment with, uh, I think, a church, regardless of denomination, a Christian church they were loyal to, they had put their trust in, um, they realized that, that some of, a lot of what they were taught may have been distorted. Yeah. We're going to talk about just what you said. I've got twice the son of hell in my notes. And there was a different uh, sacrificial ritual for the priests, the daily priests, than there were for the non-priest Jews to acknowledge that their level of influence and the impact of wrongdoing, what that had and how it was more than just your average person. Okay, so let's look at the Old Testament covenant sanctuary and realize not one single element of the Old Testament sanctuary is to be taken literally. Every element is symbolic in some way. It all points to a larger reality. So in order to correctly understand it, we must decode the symbols and the metaphors and correctly understand the larger reality to which they point. Um. It should be no surprise that the imperial law construct is the basis for these distortions and misunderstandings. Believing that God's law functions like human laws, where we just make up rules, there are no inherent consequences. You have to be policed. You have to have some judicial oversight. There have to be external penalties and punishments. This law lens leads folks to misinterpret the meaning and significance of the Old Testament animal sacrifices. And I think we saw that in the quarterly this week. However, when you look at what the Bible actually says about Old Testament sacrifices in Hebrews 9 and 10, it says the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Again, I think that's indirect contradiction, contradiction to the quarterly this week. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Animal sacrifices were never able to deal with or address or take away the sin problem. And God told them this. During Old Testament times, right while the ceremonial system was active, in Isaiah 1, he said, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. 
learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. God was not interested in animal sacrifices. He was interested in changing people to be more like Christ. As Hosea so eloquently puts it, I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. So what in the world? So why was all of this divinely appointed, mandated, spelled out in detail? If these elaborate ceremonies and animal sacrifices could not cleanse for sin, then what in the world was its purpose? To point forward to Christ's sacrifice. Yes. And it was done. It was a theater. It was a drama. It was a play, an enactment. And it was designed to engage the sinner. And in this case, we're talking about primitive, dark-minded, slave mentality peeps. And they were being engaged in activities designed to teach and transform and enlighten them. And they were familiar activities. It was an agricultural society. Um, They killed an eight. I mean, this was a normal process for them. But can you imagine placing your hands on the head of your pet doggy or your pet kitty cat, confessing your some sin that you committed looking them in their sweet, sad eyes, and then cutting their throat and watching them die. But, you know, in doing this, it would make you think that God's not a God of love. He wants me to kill my pet lamb or whatever. I mean, it almost seems like it would bring the opposite connotation to the meaning of it. Well, would that have an impact on you Yeah. if you had to do that? Would it get your attention? Well, yeah. And again, these were darkened, primitive. They didn't value life at all. Again, he had to take them to a life for a life to get them away from a life for everything. So it was just a very rudimentary mindset that he was trying to reach and move them forward. So even on the most darkened, crusty, hard-hearted person, I think this process would touch them, would get their attention. This was part of the purpose. It was to cause them to be sickened by sin, to have a gut revulsion to sin's destructiveness, and to make them never want to participate in sin again. But there was an even bigger purpose. The entire Levitical system was a drama, a play, a theater. This system was given to a group of recent slaves. They were uneducated. They were likely illiterate. So God directed them through Moses to build a very impressive stage. Wendell. But this started before that. Yeah. The sacrifices started before that. It did. This started at the gate of Eden. Right. You know, so I'm not so certain these people were any darker than I am. Um, You don't think any of that was lost in the 500 or so years of slavery? so. Well, I, mean, I think individuals were depraved, yeah. just like we have individuals who are depraved now. 
But to think that I'm any more educated or better than people who had better intellects than I have, you know, um, I'm not certain that we, they, it was as dark. I mean, the, the sacrificial system obviously was a stage, was a theater, etc., to demonstrate something. As Hebrews mm-hmm. 10 says, that you know, it was to remind them of sin. Yeah. But I'm not certain. So you don't think we're talking about the level of moral decision making? Level one being reward and punishment? Maybe you aren't because you have been living a life of 10 years of, of feeding on the word. But I don't know where, when I go to work, that's where I am. Oh, I have, there's for sure moments, lots of them. So anyway, uh, I think you're right. This is a theater, it is several things. Um, it points forward to Christ. It does, um, it does remind us of sin. It, 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 you know, it points forward to the Savior. It's all about Christ. Yes. And we're going to see what some, some more of the symbols. And like you said, it, it wasn't just for the Israelites. The Israelites had a mission. They had a, they were missionaries. They were evangelists and they had a role to, familiarize the rest of the world at that time with God's character and the coming of the Messiah. And this theater and this play was designed to help them do that because the surrounding countries could see what was going on. Is there another comment out here? Were the Israelites the only ones that had a knowledge of a true God at that time in earth? Well, we're going to talk about that you did not have to be a member of the acting troupe. You didn't have to belong to the, to the cast in order to be saved. We have multiple examples of that, Naaman being one of the most prominent. Um, but if you joined the acting troupe, then you had to follow the script. You had to participate in the drama. So, again, the larger reality that the drama was pointing to is what was required to be saved, not the physical ritual of the ceremonial service. So if you had your heart transformed to be like Christ without being in the the sanctuary service, still saved. But yes, they were the, they were kind of the, the vessel that held the knowledge of the true God, which is why they were sent to be, to be the missionaries. Because they knew the most about it. He tabernacled with them. He dwelt with them. They had the closest communion with him, and so they should have been the best representatives. Even if the sacrifices uh, didn't hit home to your heart, the financial loss... Absolutely, yes. ...to you, you would realize, I have lost something because of what I did. Yes. You know, uh, maybe you're only thinking on that level. Right. But still, there's God realizes that sometimes we only think about... How that hurt our pocket. Exactly. How the, you know, even at our lowest level, yeah. we're like thinking of our well-being, and we're maybe even callous to the well-being of an animal, the financial loss. Exactly. To you, and you'll point out, I'm sure, later that the higher you were in rank, the, the more loss you received. That's correct. The more expensive your yes. offering. Yes. You know, but people might yeah. be sheep and, and rams and so on, and the poor were 
doves and things. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they couldn't afford anything more than that. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Even if you didn't understand, you understand that sin is destructive. Even if you didn't understand destructive to your character, it might have just started out being destructive to your pocketbook. Good. Okay. So, Israelites were the cast. They were the acting troop. They were act to act out these yearly cycles as a revelation of God's plan to heal and save humankind from sin. They were doing it for themselves. They were doing it for the surrounding nations. And they were doing it for the entire universe. Again, we are a theater and a spectacle to, to angels and men. And they were watching. Salvation was not dependent on participating or acting in the play. Nor were you required to be an Israelite. To be saved, you only had to experience the reality to which the drama was pointing. Many of the actors, though, became so consumed with following strictly to the letter of the script that they failed to comprehend and embrace the reality to which it points. So consumed and focused on the rituals and the rules that when Jesus, the larger reality to which it all pointed, came and lived with them, they hated him and they killed him. So again, the overarching thing of the entire drama is that humanity is separated from God by sin. God is working through Christ to bring humanity back into unity with himself by restoring in our hearts his character of love. And they called that at one mint. The tabernacle was placed in the center of the camp and the tribes and the people were all camped around the outskirts, separated from God in the tabernacle with the Levites in between. I have a picture to show you. So that was the camp. The tabernacle's in the middle. The Levites were in that center area. And then the 12 tribes were blocked out all around in, in the four corners. This was symbolic. The 12 tribes represent the unconverted people of the world. And the Levites, who are the priesthood of believers, the people of God, they stand between God and the unconverted people. And they go out to minister the gospel, the good news, the attributes of God to the tribes of the world, bringing them back to the knowledge of the true God and bringing them into the temple or the tabernacle. They camped in that rectangle to present People in every walk of life, on all four corners of the earth, we find God's Levites, or his priesthood of believers, in every area, in every walk of life, ministering and bringing people to him. So there are three main elements of the Old Testament sanctuary system <clears throat> that all represent Christ, <clears throat> Excuse me, but they represent him at three different stages of time. Moses represents Christ in his pre-incarnate form. Notice the similarities. Moses spoke to God face to face. Christ was in God's very presence. Moses left God's presence and confronted the ruler holding the Israelites in slavery. Christ left God's presence to confront the ruler of this world holding humanity captive in slavery. And then Moses set the people free and built the sanctuary. Christ set us free and built the true sanctuary. The lamb, the sacrificial lamb, represents Jesus as a human during his 33-year life here on this earth. 
<clears throat> and then the high priest represents Jesus after his life, death, resurrection on earth, and ascension to heaven. So let's see if we can interpret and understand the meaning of the sin offering ritual while at the same time decoding some of the sanctuary symbols. So like I said, there's two different processes. First is for a non-priest Jew. This is a member of the 12 tribes. Let's see if we can figure out what lesson it's designed to teach us. So the sinner came and placed his hands on the head of the sacrificial animal and confessed his sin. Why on the head, do you think? What was the significance of that? Where sin comes from. Where sin originates. Yes, it was symbolic of where sin happens. It happens in the mind. And the sinner, not the ministering priest, would cut the circulation. Remember, the life is in the blood. What does the blood do in the body? It circles. This is an object lesson of how love works. Love is other-centered. It's outward-moving. It just keeps giving and giving, never-ended giving. Yet sin severs the principle of giving, and the blood stops circling, and the animal dies. Sin severs God's design, the principle of love, the law of life, and results in death. The sacrificial animal and its blood represents sinless Jesus, who took on our terminal sinful condition in order to fix it, to fix humanity and become our remedy. And the blood was carried by the ministering priest in vessels. Both the priests and the vessels represent the priesthood of believers carrying the gospel message, the truth of God's kingdom throughout the world. Remember, the life is in the blood. The blood is life. The life of Christ and life is only carried in living beings. So love is carried in you. And as you love other people, remember we're talking about the, the range of people that we influence. As you love other people, you become the hands and feet of Christ. Thus, you carry the love or the blood of Christ to others. So you're a vessel. For the non-priest Jew, that blood was poured out at the base of the brazen altar. Remember, that was out in the courtyard. It represents a foundational change of heart of the sinner. This is the conversion experience where we shift from our natural heart state of enmity toward God to trust from selfishness to love. The horns on that bronze altar represent the defects in character that we develop while living in sin. This is why the blood was applied to the horns on the brazen altar and it represents the work of Christ in our hearts the new character development taking place where old pathways and habits are paired back. Character defects are being removed and replaced with new motives, new desires, and new Christ-like character traits. Some might say merits. Then the inner fat of the sacrificial offering, it was removed and burned. This is symbolic of Christ's victory on earth, overcoming those internal temptations of the carnal nature. We saw that in Gethsemane where he agonized. He's tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin. He is destroying that internal survival drive of fear and selfishness. And that's represented by the inner fat that you cannot see from the outside. Those internal fears and insecurities that we all have. Isn't it encouraging to know that Christ 
had those. He struggled with the same. This is why every time you read about the fat being burned, it said it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You ever heard that? How have you heard it taught? It's not the actual smell that's pleasing to him. It's symbolically pleasing to him. Just like if you have a child with leukemia and that child gets radiation treatments and the cancer is burned away, that burning away of the cancer is pleasing to you. So burning away the fat, burning away the fear and selfishness in our hearts, that's what's pleasing to the Lord. And Lord? Yes. Uh, a couple more things on that. When you think of what a person uh, should be, let's say, the two things that God takes away from that sacrifice, because ultimately people will eat some of these sacrifices, yes. um, is the fat and the blood, both of which are bad for you. And so not only symbolically is it uh, helpful to understand, but also God is using this technique to show them the blood is bad for you, yes. the fat is bad for you, and so I think it symbolizes that God only takes away the bad. Exactly. And gives you the best. Yes. Perfect. All right. So then they went through and washed the organs of the sacrificial lamb. This represents the cleansing of the inner man, removing guilt, shame, selfishness, and fear from the heart. Separating the fat from the organs and burning it represents Christ's work of destroying the carnal nature and the circumcision of the heart. It's literally the cutting away of the ties to all those destructive things we were attached to prior to conversion. Burning the organs represents the work of the Holy Spirit within to burn away old desires and recreate new motives and values. The fire, of course, represents the Holy Spirit. Before the blood was applied, the fire represents the unconverted person being convicted of sin and being drawn or wooed after the blood is applied, it represents the transforming power, the renewal, the healing, the regeneration provided by the Holy Spirit. Then the priests would eat the meat of the sacrificial lamb, which represents that we, as we minister the gospel and share and teach others the truth of God's kingdom, we are strengthened by partaking of Christ as we're sharing and ministering to others. The ritual and meaning of the sin offering was a little different for daily priests in their white robes than for the non-daily priests. Remember where we said pastors and people in leadership positions have a bigger level of influence, bigger impact. So again, the daily priests in their white robes represent the priesthood of, uh, priesthood of believers, and the white robes represent the renewed character of Christ that is being developed within them. The sinning priests also confessed sin on the head of the sacrificial animal, cut the circulation, and the animal died. The blood is then carried by the ministering priests in vessels, but this time the blood is not poured out initially at the brazen altar. It's taken into the holy place. The holy place, contrasting with the bronze altar, which was covered in an impure metal. Bronze is an impure metal. It requires at least two metals to be mixed together. The altar in the holy place was covered in pure gold. It represents the church, which has the purity of the truth and love of Christ. The door to the holy place was always kept open. It was never closed. And the door represents Jesus Christ, 
who is the way, the truth, the life, and the entry point for a person's salvation. He is the way in, in order to come into fellowship with God and with each other in the church. The door was always kept open, and the light from the lampstand in there would shine out into the courtyard. Thus, the light of Christ shines out and would draw people from the world into the church. So instead of pouring out the blood on the brazen altar, the priest's sacrificial blood is taken into the holy place and is sprinkled seven times before the veil. Why would that be necessary, you think? We're going to talk about the veil for a minute. So imagine you're a priest working in the sacrificial system, a daily priest in their white robe, symbolic of a Christian who loves God. You're in the church. You're in the holy place. You love God. You long to see him more clearly. Maybe you ask like Moses did, Lord, let your glory pass before me. You know Shekinah's back there. You can see it. You want to see God face to face. But as you look to see God more clearly, there's something in the way. Something blocks your view. What is blocking your ability to see God? What does the veil represent? What happened to the veil? It was torn. It was torn. It was destroyed. It was rent from top to bottom by God when Christ died. It was the only element of the sacrificial system that was destroyed at the cross. What obstructs our view of God? The lies that we believe about him. Yes. And when Christ died, that obstruction was torn or ripped or destroyed. And now I can see God more clearly. Satan's lies about God and our own carnal natures we are born with are what obstruct our view of God. Angels on the veil represent God's agencies sent to help us battle these two forces and to overcome But no angel could break the barrier. Only the Son of God could break that barrier. And thus Jesus destroyed the lies of Satan with the truth that he revealed. And he destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness with his perfected character. And he opened a new and living way back through the barrier and into unity with God. So why does the priest's sacrificial blood get sprinkled seven times before this veil? If the veil represents the obstruction that prevents us from seeing God clearly, the lies, misrepresentation, and distortions about God, then when a person who carries the name Christian, a person who says, I'm like Jesus, I follow Jesus, when they go out and commit a sin, do they make it easier for people to see God, or do they add to that obstruction? Therefore, it takes the perfection of Christ or seven times to overcome the additional obstructions that we Christians put in the way when we we misrepresent Christ with our lives. And here's where I have twice the son of hell, question mark. Because you know we do that, whether intentionally or accidentally. Okay, so then the blood is taken over to the golden altar, and it's placed on the horns there, but these horns are smaller than the horns out on the brazen altar. And that's showing that the blood of Jesus, or the character of Jesus, is cleansing them and removing the pattern patterns, the habit patterns, these vestigial remnants of sin from the heart 
are still there, but they're shrinking. Now, prayers were only offered by the converted. Thus, the incense is burned on the golden altar. No incense was burned on the bronze altar because the unconverted don't offer their prayer and praise. Incense represents Christ's character lived out and wafting out over the camp. So when they would burn incense, it's not only our prayers, but also our adoration, the way we live our lives to celebrate and testify what God has done for us. This is the sweetness of our lives as we have been renewed by Christ. So the incense burning on the golden altar would waft out over the camp and draw the people groups of the world into interest in what was happening in the sanctuary. The incense was a proprietary blend. He, he defined exactly how yes. to make this incense, and no one else was allowed to make that fragrance. Oh, interesting. So the interesting thing is God approaches us through every sense that we have, through our sight, through our hearing. Mm-hmm. They had trumpets blowing. They had yeah. different sounds that you were listening to. Through the fragrance, even, it would make you think of the Lord. Yeah. You know, because no one else was allowed to make that particular blend. I like it. Okay, so then the remaining blood that was left over from the golden altar is taken out and poured out at the base of the brazen altar. This represents God's power to reach the unsaved people of the world as we within the body of Christ are gracious to each other and forgiving of each other. As we handle the sinfulness that we all struggle with within the church and help each other overcome, people are witnessing that and their hearts are touched and brought to conversion. How do you think we're doing with that in the church? I don't know. I don't know that we're making the best impression on that. It's it's kind of like an unwritten rule to show no weakness in church because if you do, the sharks will absolutely descend. Well, we insist on uh, many of those being removed prior to membership. It's not allowed. So there were other items in the holy place. There was a lamp stand, which represents the word of God. Thy word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. But both the living and the written word of God are represented here. The central stand was made of solid gold. It represents Christ, the word made flesh. And then there were six branches attached to the central stand. Six is numerically representative of humanity or mankind. Six branches, humankind, connected to Jesus Christ, makes seven. So only connected to Christ can we be completed or perfected and enabled to shine light and truth into the world. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. There were bowls at the top of each stand, and they represent the hearts of those who have accepted Christ. And as the word enlightens their minds and the Holy Spirit burns with light and truth, they are able to witness for God's kingdom. What was interesting is only the high priest, which represents Jesus, trimmed the wicks of the lamp, the evening and the morning. No one else. This symbolizes that only Jesus working in our hearts can heal and transform and cut away the dross, cut away the encumbrances and the old habits and the distortions so that we burn brighter and brighter for him. And interestingly, the branches uh, had, had al- um, almond 
flower. Yes. Stuff on them, reminiscent of uh, of Aaron's rod that not only budded, flowered, but fruited right. an almond right. overnight. Right. Right. <laughs> and was kept in the next to the uh, Ark of the Covenant I as a reminder. We're going to talk about. This candlestick is also a reminder of God can take something dead, dead. and bring mm. it to life overnight. Amen. Dead in trespass and sin, no less. Yeah. We're going to talk about the, the box. So there was a table there. It was made of wood, porous wood, but covered in gold, obviously representing Jesus, uh, who became human, perfect, gold, sinless. Then there was a border around the table which was the only element in the sanctuary that was not measured in cubits. It was measured in hand's breadth, symbolically suggesting that the hand of God is protective around his son and what his son provides for us. There were 12 loaves of unleavened bread without yeast, representing the word of God that we are to ingest and partake of. 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes. In the theater, the 12 tribes then represented all the peoples of the world. And thus the word of God, his provisions are sufficient for all the people groups of the world. There was incense on top of the 12 loaves representing the sweetness of Christ's character. There was wine representing the perfect character and sinless life and love of Jesus Christ. We are to drink and ingest it. Interestingly, what would happen every Sabbath, the daily priests in their white robes, which represents the priesthood of believers who've been renewed and reborn to have Christ-like characters, they enter the holy place, which is the church, and with the high priest who represents Jesus, they would all together eat the bread, which is the word of God, and burn the incense, which is symbolic of offering prayers and praise to God every Sabbath in church. Now what about the most holy place? The place behind the curtain. What do we find there? Yes. While the holy place represents the church, the most holy place represents the universe cleansed of sin and restored to at one and perfection with God. So we find the Shekinah glory or God's presence there. We find angels, which represent unfallen, sinless beings. We find the lid of the ark made of solid gold, which represents Jesus. Then there's a box beneath the lid. We got God represented, we got Jesus represented, we got the angels represented. Who's missing? We are. Yes. Sinners saved. That's the box. That's what the box represents. The box was made of porous wood covered in pure gold. So as human beings who were sinners who have through Christ been perfected and renewed to righteousness and restored into unity to God, with God, and the box contained... Linda's already mentioned one element. There were three things that were kept there. They were put into the box in a very specific order. The box represents the hearts of the converted who have been restored into unity with God. And the first thing that went into the box was manna, the bread of heaven. Jesus is the bread of heaven. So the first thing a sinner must partake of in order to have their hearts restored is they must partake of Jesus. The word of God, the light that lightened all men. And as we partake of Jesus, we are one to trust. The lies are destroyed. The fear is taken away. We open our hearts to him in trust. And when we open our hearts to him, the second thing goes into the box. What was, what was put in second? The law. The law. The Ten Commandments. 
And it says he writes his law in our hearts and minds as we open our heart and trust. Thus, we get new motives, a new operating system, new methods. God's principles and designs of other-centered love and truth and freedom are regenerated within us. What's the third thing that goes in the box? Aaron's rod it was dead. It was just a stick. It had no life. Then it comes to life. It begins budding. And as Linda said, bears fruit overnight. Just as we who were dead in trespass and sin now bring forth the peaceful fruits of righteousness. We live again for God's kingdom. Some posit that the lid of Jesus is covering the broken law just as they think his robe of righteousness covers our wickedness so that we're not seen as we are. God only sees Jesus. But there were two instances of the Ten Commandments, both written by the hand of God on stone. One was broken, one was unbroken. Which one went in the box? Unbroken. It was the unbroken instance of the law that went into the ark because it's not the broken law being covered It is the perfect righteousness of Christ being reproduced in the heart, written on the heart again. It's an unbroken law being restored in us. Again, Jesus is the lid of solid gold that connects the entire universe. Notice the Shekinah is touching or connected to the lid. The angels are on the lid. The converted peoples of the world are touching the lid. All things in heaven and on earth are reconciled or brought together under one head, Jesus Christ. He is the unifying link that brings the universe back into oneness or at one mint. Unity is the goal. The entire drama is designed to teach God's plan to eliminate sin and restore the universe to at one mint. The sin offering represents in symbol the plan to heal and restore individuals by removing sin, not from record books or account ledgers. In smoke-filled rooms in heaven. But from the hearts and minds of people, salvation is found in the reality, not in the symbols. And that reality is Jesus Christ. Okay, should we move on to the new covenant sanctuary? The hardest thing that I've had to get my mind around is there was a sin offering, but there was a guilt offering. Yes. And so I'm trying to think, what is the difference between sin and guilt? which required a different offering. I don't know, unless... I mean, I don't know, but maybe it's the sin offering had already been had been offered, but they were still struggling with guilt. Have you ever done that? I mean, have you ever confessed your sin, felt like you were forgiven, still struggled with guilt? I don't know. I know it's a whole different category. And, or unless they were, maybe they didn't commit an actual sin, but were guilty for something, felt bad about something. I don't know. Could there be a sort of an, an ephemeral line between the idea that the law has defined a sin? So... You might say that somebody would recognize that as the formal 
departure from, you know, absolute correctness. Mm -hmm. But they never really own it. Yeah. So the guilt offering would be something where you say, not only did I do that, I wanted to do that. Mm. You have to find reconciliation, whether you did it accidentally or whether mm -hmm. you actually did it on purpose. Yeah, maybe it had to do with heart motive. And on the more of a general side, Please. I've always wondered, all that blood being sprinkled on everything, how dirty that must have been. Oh, it had to be. It was a bloody, bloody service. Yeah. I mean, how did they, you know, everything was so perfect, perfectly done, perfectly mm -hmm. and everything. God was so particular about everything. Then all this blood sprinkled on everything. Well, but he was also particular about they hand, how they handled that, how they how they disposed of it, and everything. I think for for those purposes, not to mention, I mean, they were living in a wilderness in the desert. Can you imagine the smell? I can't imagine the smell. And it sounded like they did have some hygiene issues anyway, based on the Levitical law. There was a lot that had to be spelled out that sounded like different from what they were used to. So. More questions? Old Testament? Yes. Yeah, and I'm also trying to imagine, what was it, about a million Israelites mm -hmm. that were encamped? Or more. A million men, right? A million men. How could they possibly see what was going on individually to understand all these symbols of what things meant when they it, physically they couldn't have seen? Yeah, you'd have to be on the front row. I, 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 I don't get it. So the only people that were really involved in what this meaning was, was the, just the priest. What do you think? Do you think they had maybe stadium seating or something? Maybe they... There was a fence around the, the temple so you couldn't see at all. You were hidden in Christ. So how did the people on the outside of that camp have this passion for yeah. what God was trying to teach them? Well, everybody, everybody there would have sinned. So everybody would have experienced a sin offering. Right. They would have experienced firsthand what was taking place themselves. So does that mean that you, the sinner, gets that privilege that day to go in and see? Absolutely. You are putting your hands on the, the animal and you are cutting its throat. Yeah. You are participating yeah, in the sinner. ritual. So how do you get a million people to do this on a daily basis? They had to have, they had to have Walt Disney-like queuing systems. They had to have... Which, again, I think is why Moses was told to, to appoint the judges and things like that. It was a lot to manage logistically. Like I said, maybe they did, maybe they, they did them, separated them by the, the five or six days that weren't Sabbath so that they could get everybody done by the end of the week. They did do that 24 hours a day. And I don't know how many Levites there were. Maybe there were enough ministers. Surely they didn't sacrifice, everybody sacrificed every day. I, I, mean, I would hope not. Possible. I would hope so. not. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how they, they accrued. I, I, I don't even know how it could be in one animal for each sin. There's not enough animals for me. The sacrifices were not for intentional sin. Okay. Uh, someone needs to read that more. But uh, it was for, and we have the idea of acts of right. sin, and I'm not certain that's what we're... I, yeah, I don't think it was one-to-one -one behavior related. 
um, I again, I think it had to be more heart motivated. I hope it was more heart motivated. Maybe it got to the point where it was behavior related because they got so in the weeds on the rituals that they missed the bigger picture that it was trying to change your your heart, mind, and character versus your performance. And if you've ever seen an actual sized temple, which they sanctuary yeah. that they use, it travels around and they, exactly. You know, we went and saw it, and I think the thing that impressed us was the small. Right. <laughs> yes, relatively small, um, as far as what you could see from here to there, pretty pretty easily. Right. And if what you said earlier, the light was shining out of yeah. the place into the courtyard. I don't know if they kept that that curtain open while the priests were in there, but that would be, it's a pretty easy eye shot between where you are right. there by the side and where the holy place is. Yeah. There's really barely room for a person to walk between. Exactly. The when side. I saw that the temple, you know how they had the enactment, the, the group that went around with it, it showed the actual size of the temple. What amazed me was it was so small compared to the big encampment of the Israelites. When she was saying, how could they see what was going on? When you see how small it was, it's all the more, how could they see? It's amazing. Even miraculous. Yeah. Doing the white, the white curtain around the entire yes. mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're not going to be looking at the... But again, I'm wondering, maybe they were camped on hills around so that they could see over the curtain. And the white curtain wasn't nearly as tall as the curtains for the sanctuary. Right. Itself. They were only, what, eight, ten feet tall. Yeah. And the curtains were, and the sanctuary were much taller than that. But maybe it was also more of a private thing between you and God. Right. A sin offering, the whole, you don't want the whole congregation. Exactly, exactly. And again, I don't know if they aggregated some of this. I don't know that they could have done this process for every single person, every single animal. You know what I mean? The the blood may have been combined and sprinkled once for all sort of thing. Exactly. Not for me. There aren't enough animals on the planet for me. Okay, so we're running out of time real quick. Heavenly sanctuary. Maybe we'll get to ask these questions when we see the sanctuary in heaven. Or are we not sure that there's a building in heaven? That's the question. Some are quite sure there's a building in heaven. I'm not quite sure. I think that we are the temple of God. He wants to dwell. He wants to tabernacle with us. He wants to dwell in us. He wants us to be partakers of the divine nature. So I'm just going to read a couple of quick quotes that indicate that one of the founders of our church believed the same thing. Christ is in heaven in the most holy place. He's engaged in his high priestly ministry. We're wondering what that looks like. What have we been taught? We've been taught there's a smoky room in heaven. There's incense. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of records. And there's some work being done. Forensic work on those record books. So God, in order to refute the lies of Satan and to reveal his true character, has kept records, but not to judge us by, but to demonstrate that all those who are lost are lost because they have refused God's remedy. There's also another set of records in which our sins are recorded, but these records are not judicial records either. They are the actual individualities of each person whose characters are perf perfectly recorded in heaven. 
In other words, every unrepented sin is recorded in the character of the unrepentant. This is why Jesus could say, let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. Mrs. White wrote, remember that your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven as minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. What do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character and making them white in the blood of the lamb? Another quote, every passing hour of the present is shaping our future life. These moments spent in carelessness in self-pleasing as if of no value are deciding our everlasting destiny. The words we utter today will go on echoing when time has shall be no more. The deeds done today are transferred to the books of heaven, just as the features are transferred by the artist onto the polished plate. They will determine our destiny for eternity for bliss or eternal loss and agonizing remorse. Character cannot be changed when Christ comes. What do you think? What do you think the cleansing of the temple is about? Is it about books in heaven? Jesus is right now in the most holy place in heaven, leading all the agencies at his disposal on hev- in heaven and earth, in the work of cleansing the minds, hearts, and characters of his people from the lies about God. He's removing selfishness. He's restoring righteousness. These are the building blocks of his heavenly sanctuary. We are the building blocks of his heavenly sanctuary. Let's close with prayer. Father, we're so grateful that you go to such an extent, such an elaborate symbolic drama to show hard-hearted, stubborn people what your plan to heal and save is. We again ask for your spirit to just continue uh, showing us who you are, speaking what he hears from you. Let us be open to that truth is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.